Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. Nick here again. I've cheated a little bit with this episode. This is actually a recording uh, that was posted on the Strongest Stride podcast. I was fortunate enough to be a guest over there uh, a couple of weeks ago, and we had a really great discussion around the fundamentals of what we do here at Mets in the Lab, uh, talking through things like VO2 max, training zones, thresholds, whether, whether that be lactate or, or ventilatory thresholds, and, and how it all sort of integrates, how we use that data uh, to be able to inform performance. And I think it was a good one just to revisit those basic basic concepts. I mean, we've talked about them on the podcast before, but uh, some something that we get asked quite a bit is, uh, can you go back and revisit the basics? Because for some of those, some of those who are listening to this, um, you might have joined us partway through this whole series of podcasts that we've done, and we've been accumulating episodes over a, a couple of years now. So, if you haven't gone all the way back to episode one to ten, or or somewhere in the middle where we've revisited, it's always good to to sort of go back to basics. What are the key things that, and fundamentals of what we do uh, here in the lab? But also, what are the fundamentals that we've we've sort of always done uh, across the journey of Mets as well? So that's what this episode is. It's a great conversation. Hopefully, you get plenty out of it. Uh, I'm going to stop talking and let you dive right into the conversation. So here's me as a guest uh, on the Strongest Stride podcast, talking all things physiology and endurance. Hope you enjoy it. Do you want to tell us, us and the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, what you're doing for work at the moment, and how you kind of got to this point? Yeah. So as you said, so I'm a sports scientist uh, and endurance performance coach. Um, based in Melbourne, um, working out of Mets Performance. Uh, so we're a small uh, little private sector endurance physiology lab, um, and we'll, we'll sort of talk about a bit what we do in a moment. But um, largely in that that endurance and ultra endurance space. Um, so a lot of the athletes we work with are runners, uh, marathon, half marathon, some of the shorter stuff as well. So you five and ten k, but then we do get quite a lot of the ultra distance, um, which is probably then a bit more of my specialties in things like long course triathlon, um, half Ironman, Ironman distance. Um, work with a number of athletes uh, across there and and sort of that that interesting dynamic of what happens post four hours really um physiology sort of starts to do some crazy things there which is which is a really interesting thing so um i've been working um in this space for the last sort of five and a half six years um after doing an undergrad in sports science uh, and then went on to do my master's in high performance sport um so uh, definitely come from that that science uh, approach, uh, but also blending it in in a really applied way. Like we try to think in, and work in a really practical way because what can often happen in a lab um, is nice, but then it's how it translates to actual performance is what we what we really tried to hone in on. Um, it's nice to to go through the research when it's all controlled and we we factor in all the all these little things. But as we know, it's like when you train out in the real world. Um, things get thrown up all over the place that you might not have planned for. So how can we, how can we get some of those findings to work? Uh, and then also how do we problem solve uh, athletes performance to, to help them be better um, for what they want to do on race day? Mm, that's awesome. And do you come from a sporting background yourself? Are you a triathlete? Like what was your interest in this area? Yeah. So I've always been a bit of a, when I say a bit of a sports nut, like as a kid, I could sit down and watch anything. Um, so like with, when the Olympics is on, it's, it's a shocker for me. Cause I'll, I'll literally watch every, every and all sports. Um, but so that really is sort of my interest as a, uh, like getting into the sports industry. Um, I grew up swimming, grew up playing footy, cricket, like it, again, played and watched everything I could. Um, in terms of, I, I got into the triathlon side of things, um, pretty casually as just a bit of an interest. Like I was a reasonable swimmer. Um, you, you, play footy through winter and you sort of go well I'm fit enough I just need to ride a bike a few times and I can I can do it uh, so that's sort of my interest in endurance sports I guess came from uh, being involved in it from a pretty young age uh, but in terms of what I what I actually do now is I actually umpire footy at uh, sub elite or elite level in the VFL and uh, through the AFLW so um, that sort of takes up most of my my time a fair amount of running load but in a different way um, sort of a lot of stop start change direction type stuff um, so I try and get some tries away over the summer or, or a fun run or something here and there, but um, yeah, slightly different uh, use of my own fitness these days. But uh, yeah, I mean, the endurance stuff has always been sort of a bit of a fascination of like, how, how can we, how can we train ourselves? Um, I mean, it's, it's this interesting dynamic, particularly something like running. It's like, obviously we have the shoes now, but I've always sort of been fascinated with it. At the end of the day, it's person versus person. Um, whoever's got the best physiology really is going to more often than not come out on top. Um, so that, that's always been that sort of, like, I guess, pure um, It's yeah, physiology versus physiology. It's not because someone's got better equipment or has better funding necessarily. Like the, the best athlete, pure athlete generally is going to win. So um, that's where I sort of drew, drew me into that endurance path and, and that's where I've sort of stayed. 
Yeah. When you say, you know, like looking at person to person physiology versus physiology, is it, do you often see that people are, I guess, born talented or born with these great genetics, great physiology, and they can then sort of capitalize on that and improve? Or do you find that if people are just willing to put in enough hard work, they can kind of get to that same level? Or is there kind of um, like, do you notice, I guess the, the changes you know, if you test someone at baseline and then retest later on, do you notice that more people have a some people have a bigger capacity to to improve, or is there a limit on that? Yeah, I think it it definitely depends. At to what extent are we talking um, from a overall performance level or level of competition? Um, if we're looking at a Olympic final in the ten thousand, um, that's largely genetic. <laughs> I mean, you're not getting to that level. Sure, you'll get there with a lot of hard work, and there's definitely athletes who can make the Olympics um, off pure hard work and just battling away. The difference, though, and this is in a lot of sports, uh, and it's really noticeable at that top end, is is the difference between someone just making an Olympics and then someone making an Olympic final and then the gold medalist out of that Olympic final. There's a strong genetic component that will separate those from each other, but then also those from the top end age grouper um, we quite often see age group marathon runners who come in and can run a two and a half hour marathon, which is unbelievable. Um, they would just may never get anywhere near a two ten or a two Oh five to even qualify for an elite event. Um, they could train the house down do all they like, but genetics is one component that may be holding them back to make making that step. So there is a, there is a bit of a, you gotta, you gotta have the right genes in the first place. You gotta sort of be born with it. Um, what I tend to see a lot of is is athletes either waste that um, mm. and and direct, uh, I guess, direct their their time and energy into other sports. And you, you see it in your team sports. I mean, there's some phenomenal endurance runners who play AFL or soccer or or are in very like field hockey. There's some unbelievably aerobic athletes there. Um, that's just what they want to play. Um, they could have been Olympic level runners, but they decide to to go elsewhere. Um, or alternatively, if they don't quite have the genetics, they just loved running. And, and unfortunately, in that circumstance, like they may just never make that top 1%. So it definitely works both ways. But largely, if we're talking like the amateur runner, though, um, a lot of it is what you a lot of it is going to be what you put in is the result you're going to get. Um, and the, the consistency over time is is critical. But if you you, then, you still then have to look at, I mean, age group racing and amateur racing seems to get more and more competitive every year. Um, that that top 1% will always have a little bit of a genetic advantage. Mm-hmm. And, and when we're talking about physiology and genetics, what are you actually testing on a day-to-day basis? Or what are the things that I guess you could test to sort of determine if someone has the makeup to be a great athlete? Yeah, so it's an interesting one on a like from a lab testing perspective. When, when someone comes in for the first time, and test with this. There's there's a few markers that we sort of look at to go, where are you at right now? Um, the interesting thing with that though is a lot of that data, because it is very snapshot, like we're looking at this point in time specifically. Um, if I haven't seen that athlete before, it, it's sometimes hard to get a trend on, well, how much better could they be? Um, we really need sort of a bank of tests over a period of time. So quite often I'll say to a lot of athletes, I really need to see you three or four times over, say, a nine to 12 month period um, to really see, are we continuing to plateau or is thing, are things still trending in an upward direction to know where is that ceiling? Um, in terms of numbers though, if, if someone came in and they said, oh, I'm trying to crack into the elite level or at a, at a pretty high level, what are the things do I want to, what, what things do I want to see? Very distance dependent. Like if we talk running, like I want to see a really high VO2 max in a 5,000 meter runner. Um, it, it's a non-negotiable. Um, I, I want to see something in the mid to high 70s if not getting close to 80 uh, and i want to see them running 23 24 25k an hour plus when they're reaching that um you, you need both the oxygen consumption and the ability to turn the legs over quick enough to run at those elite paces um when we then look at amateur it's very different because it's going to vary male versus female but then also age categories as well um what is competitive at that age category um uh, really, it's just a process of then just breaking down what what times are we seeing in events and all right, how does that stack up relative to where that event should sit within your physiology. So um, 
I mean, you can you can then start to look at like where the thresholds sit, but fundamentally, we look at a couple of couple of key metrics um, that that sort of filter into VO two max. One of them for us is uh, what we call fraction of expired oxygen. Um, I'll try and explain it without going too technical into like numbers and calculations, but it, it's ultimately the percentage of oxygen that we're breathe in the air that we're breathing back out. Um, that's a really interesting one. We quite often see the really elite runners have very low FeO two. Um, lower is better because we don't necessarily want to be breathing out or wasting um, that much. So, typical amateur runner, for example, might be around the 16, 16.5% mark uh, at very low intensity in the test, whereas the elite, a lot of the really elite genetically gifted, are down at like 12.5, 13% um, from what we've seen in the test. So that that's one marker. It's it's not the be all and end all if you're not down there, but that's something that generally tells us pretty early, okay, th- this athlete's got a fair bit of potential. Um, and I actually had that with a with a triathlete who jumped into triathlon, hadn't really dabbled in it too much. Um, I saw that in his testing. I said, hey, like, give it a bit of time. Like, you could actually be pretty good. Um, 12 months later, we took like, what, 52, 53 minutes off his half Ironman time, um, purely just on the fact that, like, he was like, oh, I'm actually endurance inclined. <laughs> I, I sort of get that this is what I'm, really meant to be training for i'm better suited to train for and all of a sudden he's performing pretty well and now he's winning his age group pretty much every race so it like there are those markers that you can sort of spot um but their physiology is quite dynamic too like someone who's really capitalized on what they've got um like you're going to see different trends to someone who might might have the potential there but hasn't really trained it or or done anything with it Um, and then there's also the something like running too i mean running economy plays such a big part. But the classic case of that is like, you look at the breaking two attempt, um, take the best 10 VO2 maxes in the world initially. That's great. But Kipchoge is still the fastest marathon runner in the world. Um, doesn't have the highest VO2 max by, by a long way, but he just has the best economy and he's still the fastest. So we've got to look at, okay, some of those factors are important and they're going to give us indications, but like things like race day performance are always going to give us those really clear ideas as well. So it's this process of just balancing a number of different factors um, to sort of go, all right, how how close are we to being someone who can be right at the top or top of age group or whatever it might be. I mean, there's just so much that is in there. And I guess there's, so there's so much data which you can unpack. Coming back to the FEO2, is that something that you see typically quite sort of uh, steady with an athlete like that's just something that would be pretty set and then they're looking to improve their VO2 max or whatever else data you you take or is that something that also has quite a training response yeah so if we look at uh, I might start with VO2 max because that's that's probably the one that most are more familiar with um def, VO2 max can definitely move and, and FEO2 can and I'll, I'll come back to it but VO2 max can definitely move in particular can move a fair bit for those who haven't necessarily fully unlocked what they're at, what they're fully capable of, um, which is a lot of amateur runners um, in particular, but it's the, it's the type of thing. It's like, all we're looking at with something like VO2 max is just how well does you, and really the definition is how well does your body take in transport, then utilize oxygen. So it's, what is my, what do my lungs and my respiratory system do? What does my heart and the blood do? And then how do they then combine to get, the required oxygen to the working muscle to be able to produce what we need to run, ride, row, cycle, whatever it might be. Um, so ultimately, if we have an improvement in any or multiple of those components, we're going to get an improvement in something like VO2 max. Um, to a point, obviously, everyone's got their like genetic limit. But as we said, that like, at some point, they will sort of plateau out. But um, and, and then it's about some of the other factors, like how can we get faster with the same oxygen consumption, et cetera. But all of that can definitely move. Um, In terms of like trends within that, something like an FEO2, like the classic trend we see within that is throughout like a VO2 max or a ramp-based test where we gradually increase the intensity. At low intensities, you'll have a quite steady FEO2 because particularly if we look at amateur runners, a lot of amateur runners go out and do a good amount of easy volume for the most part or a good amount of Ks. Um, And they've got quite well-developed, especially those who do half marathon marathon like we run 40 50 60 70 80 plus k's a week really well developed bottom end of the engine so what we actually see is a really stable feo2 what that means is that as their ventilation is going up we're getting just really good bang for buck in terms of oxygen coming into the system it's like as we start to breathe a little bit more we're extracting a good amount out of it we're not really wasting too much 
as we start to get to higher intensities, it becomes harder and harder to do that because on that particular day when we test someone, your physiology is kind of, it is what it is. Within 20 minutes of testing, you're not going to change the infrastructure in your muscle. You're not going to change the capillary density. You're not going to change how much hemoglobin you got. You're not going to be able to change how many litres of air you can get into your lungs, your ventilation. Um, that can change over time, but not in the 20 minutes that we're testing. So what we eventually see is the intensity goes up, something like FeO2 actually starts to increase. So we start blowing off a bunch more. That's compounded by the fact that ventilation goes up. So we just start breathing excessive amounts of air. And we really see this transition point happen at something like threshold, um, which is where we can get into ventilatory thresholds. But ultimately, we start breathing in a bucket load of air because it's just not the same bang for buck anymore. The body's under the pump. Like the infrastructure is not quite there to be as effective as you can. So we just got to try and turn things over really quickly. Um, as we sort of get better, it's it's a much easier process. But that's where the typical trend, if you sort of imagine, if you're listening to this, is, as sort of a, the FeO2 graph is kind of like a flat line and then it just skyrockets. It just becomes almost vertical. That's a super typical trend. When we see that, um, that's a big key indicator for us to say, this athlete probably could do with some really top end aerobic power work, um, your high intensity interval type work, your, your two to three, four minute type efforts on the track. Um, perfect example of someone who could really benefit from that type of training because the upper end starts to struggle a little bit quickly. Um, very classic amateur runner trend, really good at the bottom end, pretty good through threshold struggle right at the very, very top. Cause typically our hard sessions aren't hard enough. Um, and without the testing, we don't quite know that. Um, but that's where we can see drastic change in VO2 max. And we see that time and time again, um, targeting that top end, we can start to flatten that, that FEO2 graph out. So it becomes a little bit more steady throughout a testing scenario. What does that mean? Well, it just takes longer to get to our peak values. Um, ultimately, we're running faster, greater oxygen consumption at the top, um, gives us more to play with in terms of the aerobic engine. And um, you've spoken about the testing being like a snapshot. When we look at, uh, like I know things like the whoop band and the aura ring have become really popular with sort of recovery science and people looking at things like heart rate variability uh, or, or just heart rate. And we know that they change so much. Like it's almost like a blood pressure reading. Like you could be stressed or, or eating something funny or have more caffeine and they just fluctuate so much. Um, and, and probably anyone who wears a heart rate monitor or they watch can just look at their heart rate and notice that it just changes so quickly. Is the data that you're capturing similar to that? Like are these metrics similar to that? Is if I've like had, you know, a, a busy week at work or I'm a bit stressed or, you know, something's going on, is is that all that data almost just going to be a waste of time because I'm just not feeling it on the day when I come in to be assessed? Or are you still going to get a good indication of what someone's potential is? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I we get this a fair bit. Um, we we get it quite a lot with athletes who, yeah, might not be feeling great that week. Um, typically a lot of athletes will just postpone the testing if they are significantly down. Um, generally as well, we then just have those conversations around timing of testing. I mean, I, ideally, ideally, I'd love all, all the athletes that I test to come in fully tapered, ready to go to give up absolute 100%. But if you're racing in four weeks, I don't want you tapering for my test. Like, or I, I don't need to miss out on any training just so we can get good results in the lab. So from a protocol perspective, we're definitely going to be able to see when I say we're going to see what we need to see, if we jump into the lab and okay, we know at your absolute best you could get a VO2, you could get a VO2 max of fifty-five or sixty. That that number is kind of relevant. Like use as an example, and you come into the lab and all right, you're a bit fatigued, but we know we're racing a couple of weeks. We haven't quite tapered yet. We've just gone through a big block of training. Um, some of those recovery metrics aren't quite in our favour. We probably know you're going to underperform a little bit. Where we're going to see that is instead of getting a VO2 max of 60, you might get a VO2 max of 57 or 58. Um, we might not be able to go for the extra 30 seconds to what we normally would at the end of the test. Um, that's where we're going to see the big change. We're not really going to change at 60% of VO2 max, at very low intensity, um, low blood lactate level. Like all of that's going to be relatively consistent because you like, What's that equivalent of? Well, that's the equivalent of you going out and doing a very, very easy, long, slow run. So even on those days where your, your recovery metrics might be no good, your HRV is all over the place, um, you wake up not feeling great. Like If you think about what are the sessions in the week that are easiest to do when you're in that state, well, the, the long, slow ones are because it's it's not very it's not very intense. It, it's very low level. It doesn't require a lot of the body. 
So that's where from a testing protocol perspective, those first initial parts of the test, we don't really see much variation at all. Like you got, you'd have to be pretty significantly sick, fatigued, uh, a combination of all of those to really have a massive impact at the bottom end. Um, we sort of, I guess, work around that a bit by putting in some pretty clear recommendations in place around, we don't want you going out and doing a big, hard threshold, heavy track set 48 hours prior to the test. Um, we don't want you going out and doing your two and a half hour long run on the Sunday and then coming in at 6.30 in the morning on the Monday to do your test. Like things like that, we obviously make smart decisions around and we sort of incorporate it into the training week as best we can. Um, but uh, but ultimately it's like at the end of the day, it is just a snapshot in time of where I, am I this week? And, and I get this a lot heading into racing is I'd rather test someone four weeks out a bit fatigued and have a look at where things have changed at the middle, bottom end of their engine where it's relevant then they taper off, they get into race day and they're like, oh, well, testing data said I, I should be about here and I can actually run a couple of percent above that because I'm fully recovered. It's a much better mindset to be in than you come into lab fully recovered, you smash it, you peak too early, you smash your numbers in the lab and then you've kind of, you, you, yeah, you peak four weeks out, you then go through to a bit of a maintenance block, you get to race day and you're like, well, I peaked four weeks ago, mm-hmm. had a really good test, but I didn't race well, um, which again, that comes back to that, point on we're very practical about how we do it um i say this to a lot of guys like a lot of academics would probably come into our lab and be like "Eh, what are you doing that for what are you doing that for it's like we make this a lot of those decisions based on well okay we get this is where we need to get the absolute like perfect lab side of things that's great but that doesn't necessarily translate like i'd rather manipulate some testing protocols or like let's like for some athletes it's like we don't even go to max in some tests because it's just not worth it for them to be that fatigued at the end of the test ready because they have to, like my triathletes, like they might have to go and swim in the afternoon and then do a gym session and then still run. And we've done a test in the morning. So we may not go to max because it, it's that last little component. If they're doing a four-hour plus event, VO2 max is great, but it's not our biggest indicator of performance. I'm more interested in the submaximal stuff. So you can start to make decisions on that that can kind of work around what we're saying here in terms of, all right, I'm a bit, I'm a bit cooked but I can come in and I'm only working through to a certain point. Like we, we play with some of that um, to be able to get the data that we need and that's going to be useful. Um, but definitely like there's definitely circumstances where we have athletes say, I just couldn't do anything today. It's like, okay, let's postpone it. Let's come back in a couple of days time or revisit it in a few weeks or maybe it's delayed a couple of months past your racing season just so you can get through now. And like we can look at some t- training data and some field-based data that that's going to get us a bit of an insight close enough um really practical based decisions there yeah i think that makes sense to have yeah you've got to be able to apply it to a real life scenario and not not affect their training too much when they've got big races coming up and i think while we're on the topic of vo2 max i think it'd be um i guess insightful for listeners to understand how do we actually change it so if someone's come into it done a test with you and they've had a score that might be relatively low for their age and gender and all those sort of things. How do they actually go about improving VO2 max and how does it actually look like practically with their training? Yeah, so it is going to be to an extent largely individual on what, how does how do things trend? I mean, if someone comes in and goes, go VO2 max at 45 or 50, like pretty good number for an amateur, um, someone who trains a couple of times a week, like not super serious about it, like that's pretty typical. Um at the end of the day, though, like that number is then going to be very specific because we, we can look and go like that relative number of mils per kilo per minute is a power to weight ratio. So if I've got an athlete who's 50, 55 kilos versus an athlete who's 80, 85 kilos, I mean, they could have very different to- total oxygen assumptions or what we call absolute mils per minute, um, but end up at the same relative because of that power to weight ratio. So for some athletes, it's looking at, well, what does that translate to performance? Is it a, we have to improve the infrastructure of how you take in transport, utilize oxygen. That side of things is what's your consistency of training? Like number one, Um, the more time we can spend out there, the less time we can spend injured, sick, unable to train, um, the the better it's going to be because it's probably the number one principle in terms of improving things like VO2 max and endurance overall is just the more sessions you can complete over a period of time. Um, based on your training plan. And it's not necessarily going out and running more. I want to like make that clear. It's more consistency is going to get you to the the outcome. But the sessions within that are 
you got to get your your long easy stuff done correctly it's it's making sure that you're running at a low enough intensity that it's not uh it's not blowing you up every time you go out there um but we're not going too easy that it's not doing anything. So finding that appropriate zone two, like we use a five zone system, but if you're using the three zones, it's a zone one. Um, that's really, really important, getting that, that volume right and the consistency of volume. Then from a supplementing that, it's well, where do things fit in within the engine? Like if we see that FEO2 trend I've described before of quite flat and then it rapidly increases at the top, well, some high intensity and almost that polarized 80 20 approach is probably going to be pretty beneficial pending where we are in the racing season or what events we've got coming up or how long we've got to prepare. Um, and what's specific, but something like that is a really effective way of boosting that top end in terms of maximal oxygen consumption for a lot of amateurs. That's a good way of giving us that extra one K an hour that we need sub maximally, or maybe a threshold to just tick things over. Um, it might be going for a more threshold based approach or a traditional approach like you've got might already have a pretty good uh, aerobic power or uh, their vo2 max might be okay could improve a bit but some of those threshold sessions are still going to have an improvement to the way we take in transport and utilize oxygen um it's just manipulating it in a different way um so so that type of specificity comes out on like what are the what are the trends of the graphs which it, it's a it's a seems like a bit of a divvy one and it's hard not to be a bit vague there because how does how does oxygen consumption come up? What does that look like in relation to FeO2 and then ventilation? And then we bring in the lactate graph over the top and go, well, how did lactate trend? Did that match what we saw with the others? Did it not quite? Uh, what does that mean in terms of like, is there more of an emphasis on volume? Is it less of an emphasis on volume or more of an emphasis on the high intensity side? What does that high intensity look like? Is it short and sharp? Is it a bit more extensive? Like, all of these dynamics then start to play into like what that individual then needs. By and large, I'd say that if we take the absolute typical amateur, I'd see though, it's continue doing the long, slow stuff and do it really well, uh, make the easy run to easy and easier than what they've currently been doing. And then you've got to go for something a bit faster than what you're currently doing. Um, the classic like 1K repeat session, like it's a it's a great session most of the time. We just got to turn it up and, and go a little bit quicker. And it's having a license to go quicker. I think that's what we see a lot. It's, it's providing that, um, that insight of, hey, I can push myself a bit harder in these hard sessions. And that's where we start to see that really good return at the top. Because um, those sessions are going to feel difficult and, and regardless. If you do 1K repeats at just above threshold, with a 30 or 60 second recovery, it's a hard session. It's a very different kind of hard when we do 1K repeats with a three minute recovery, but we do them at like 93, 95% of VO2 max. It's like, all right, pace is up 15 potentially seconds per K um, or 20 seconds per K. That's a very different kind of hard. You get to the end still feeling exhausted, but stimulus wise, it can provide some different little changes to, to how we see our physiology move. So um, I, I know it's a little, it's a little bit tricky to sort of specifically pinpoint because it's not going to be a one size fits all, mm -hmm. um, but that's where like the insights from the testing like that can then give us that really good base of what's going to be really effective in the next four, six, eight weeks. Um, Beyond that point, how quickly we adapt, how much you change is then going to be individual. Some people adapt faster, some adapt slower. How close are we to our overall genetic potential um, changes that dynamic as well. And would you be able to talk us through what the um, heart rate zones are, those training zones? I know that you mentioned depending, there's like a three zone or a five zone system. Uh, I feel like the most common one is the five zone. I don't hear as many people talking about the three zones. But would you be able to explain what they are and what the VO2 max reading will give us and how we'll then use that to interpret our, our, our training zones and then actually what that would look like for a weekly run? We've already sort of explained a little bit yep. about working at different ends. But if you could just go through that, I think that'd be really valuable. Yeah, so we, we operate off a five zone system um, uh, at the lab because – it just makes it really, we, we like it because it's nice and clear. Um, when I refer to the three zone, like I've seen three, five, seven, 11 zones. Um, you, you can break it up however you like. And, and that's probably a question I get a lot is, um, especially when we then look at like Garmin's five zones, they're different to what we use as five zones. Um, it's all just in definitions and understanding where key parts of your physiology occur is that that's, that's what the important part is. It's like knowing what sections mean what so in a in our five zone how we break it down is zone one is fundamentally active recovery so we define that as anything less than about 50 to 56 
percent of VO2 max, so your oxygen consumption. For most people, that's going to be quite a low intensity. Um, it's going to be, for most amateur runners, a lot of the time it's, I probably can't really run that slow. Um, sometimes it is, like pretty, particularly the higher trained runners or the, the faster runners can run down there, but it, it's it's not really doing a lot for us. Um, I mean, you could go out and run, but like I'd, I'd be saying if you're like for someone who, let's say their heart rate at, at that point at 55 or 56% VO2 max was like 100. Oh, for me, for example, it, like if it was 135, sub that, I definitely can't run sub that personally. Um, some people can, some people can't, but I'd be better off jumping on a bike and doing a session if I was going to go that low. Like it, there's no point me dragging my feet around in that session. It's not going to provide a huge amount of stimulus or you'd have to go for very, very long periods of time, like three, four, five hours to really get something. Um, then we then we have zone two and zone two is where most of the good stuff happens. That's your go out, build your aerobic base, long continuous Ks, um, your long Sunday run, for example. We define that as between that active recovery, so that 50, 56% of VO2 max, all the way up to a, a bit of a hybrid between your lactate threshold one and your ventilatory threshold one. Um, what those are, lactate threshold one is the first clear change in blood lactate above your baseline. So for example, if you imagine plotting these out on a bit of a graph, as we go through the test, typical for athletes to sort of be at rest around one to two millimoles of blood lactate in a pretty well-rested, well-recovered state. Um, there's a number of variables that sort of come into that. But as we get into the early parts of the test, let's say they started at one millimole at baseline, it might come up to 1.2 and goes to 1.3. It sort of stays around the same a few for a few stages. But then all of a sudden it jumps up to 2.5 and we see a cl first clear change. So we're not looking for a big change just yet, but it's a first clear change. of We've seen some consistency in blood lactate, very, very mine, minute 0.1 change we're not concerned about. We're looking for something like a 0 0.5, 0 0.6, like a clear, clear increase. What we also get roughly around that point is our first clear increase in ventilation. So that's where the ventilatory threshold comes in or VT1 that you might be familiar with. Um, for a lot of people, a really practical way of explaining that point and, and the combination of that point is, um, can you hold a conversation comfortably anymore? Yes or no. Uh, if you're starting to feel like your sentences are a bit broken, if you were to do that as say a field test, um, that's pretty close to that tipping point. Um, you're starting to breathe enough that it's making it hard to get the words out, but not excessive. You could still get some broken sentences out. Um, Another way I like to think about it, like you can think about it as well, is like if you just tried to breathe in and out through your nose, uh, what's the tipping point where you can't sustain that and you have to breathe out through your mouth now? Um, those are some practical markers you can sort of substitute in, but looking specifically at where some of those physiological numbers change is, is that upper end. That then becomes a really broad range for some people. So we then start to narrow that down and, and say, all right, for the bulk you're running, we want to be just below that upper end of it, but we want to be a bit clear of the bottom. So somewhere in the middle of that zone two is pretty much perfect. Um, Nick, can I just ask mm. on the nasal breathing side of it, my understanding is that you can get quite used to nasal breathing. There's some sort of adaptation there because I know um, – like one of my old coaches used to get us to do it sometimes as a bit of a drill and mm -hmm. some runners had never done it before and they could hardly run at all. And I know myself, I basically always nasal breathe and I run unless I'm doing like a session and going really hard. And so for me, it feels so, so super comfortable to the point where I feel like I can be running really, really hard and I know my heart rate's actually quite high and I'm sure that I'm not in zone two anymore. Um, but yeah, I'm still breathing through my nose. Is that an adaptation or is it like, what, what is that? Is that something that I've adapted or like people can adapt or am I actually just not working as hard as I think I'm working? Yeah, it's definitely an adaptation. If, if you've, for those, I guess I use that example for the like the typical runner who may not have specifically focused on it. For those who have gone and been like, I'm going to deliberately go and do it, you, you'll definitely be able to get past that point because the from a breathing adaptation side of things, it's more than about your carbon dioxide tolerance. So can like can you almost resist the urge to breathe out? It becomes a much more effective exchange of breath because all right, body wants to get oxygen in, it wants to get CO2 out fundamentally. If we're able to slightly increase our tolerance to carbon dioxide internally, it just gives us a greater exchange of gases because gases want to move from high to low 
concentration. So if I build up a little bit more CO2 internally, it's very little CO2 in the atmosphere outside. It's going to flood out of the lungs. Oxygen goes in the opposite direction. Um, you will be able to see the adaptation there if you just consistently practice over time. Um, that might mean that that doesn't match up specifically to that lactate threshold one point, which is where we start to see some interesting dynamics for everyone. And this is where for for that circumstance and for you in particular, like the torque test might be a better a better proxy for that lab data. It's never going to be perfect though because because of that individual difference. I mean, those who have never nasal breathed before and haven't even thought about it, they'll hit they'll hit that point where they can't do it pretty much instantly. Mm. Um, most of them are jumping out into a run and just breathing out through their mouth, in, in through their mouth, out through their mouth and going, oh, well, I guess this is just like, just breathing's good, yeah? <laughs> like it, it, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. But um, so, so that's where it's like, we typically find some of those transition points and some of those, I guess, practical tools happen in and around there. It's then refining it in and then having a look at, well, when we actually measure that gas exchange, is it a meaningful change or not? Um, you might actually still have a quite meaningful ventilation increase, even though you're just breathing in through your nose, out through your nose, you might be significantly increasing your ventilation um, through that time point. It just doesn't actually, I guess, when I say inverted comms, feel like it because you're not breathing through your mouth yet. Um, th those are those little subtle adaptations that, yeah, if you've gone and practiced it, absolutely, it's going to change the dynamic um that, that's that's like anything you put your body under a particular stimulus it will adapt to that to try and make it easier um how like at, at what point do you go it's not worth it breathing in through your nose out through your nose and forcing it well at some at some point in time you'll get to a high enough intensity where your body just won't allow it um particularly as you get close to the top end it's like i i haven't had a single athlete come through and say post-test i nasal I was nasal breathing the entire <laughs> test at VO2 max. And if they, if, if, they, if they have, I've said you probably didn't push hard enough. And we typically see that in, in things like their lactate data. Like you might get to the mm. end and you're like, and then like comparative to their, their race results, you go, oh, well, so you told me you could run an 18, 18 minute 5K, but you didn't quite get much quicker than that pace at VO2 max. Like there, there should be more of a gap there. Blood lactate's like three. I'm like, yeah, you didn't push, like you didn't push hard mm. enough. Um, or you didn't allow yourself to because you might not know that you could have pushed harder and you don't know that there's an extra gear. So it can work positive and negative. Um, but yeah, I mean, those just serve as like the same with the talk test. It's like it just serves as a bit of that proxy of if you if you couldn't necessarily get to a lab to find out some of the info, you could use that as, a, I guess, a, a practical tool to give you a bit of an idea. But the best way to pinpoint it is to be able to get into a lab and go like, well, let's objectively measure those changes. Mm. I mean, is it do I feel like I'm breathing more? Okay, maybe. Do I feel like my conversation a bit broken? Yeah, maybe, but they feel pretty broken at very low intensity too. So I'm not really sure. Right. Objectively on the data, it's like, again, we're going to see a pretty consistent, gradual, little increase, little increase. All of a sudden we see this a bit more of a significant jump. Okay, pretty clearly something's happening at that time point. Um, and then we see a second one of those increases, a much more dramatic one, which is then that ventilatory threshold two or lactate threshold two as well. Um, which is then how we get from zone two to zone top of zone three. Um, ultimately, that second transition is what most people then call that functional threshold. Um, what can you hold for that 40 to 60 minutes, pending how you've trained, what your training history is, et cetera. Um, that's really then how we define that zone three between the thresholds, if you like. So you've sort of got your, I guess a lot of people sort of term it like an aerobic threshold. Like at what point if I'm just below it, I've, I can just go all day, not a problem. But then your second thresholds really sort of that gets termed anaerobic threshold, I like functional threshold a bit better. Um, what can we hold for a good amount of time? But it's the intensity that if we stay just below, we can hold on to it for a bit longer. If we go just above it, we're going to start to fatigue pretty quick. Um, whereas when we go above and below that, that first little transition, it's neither here nor there. Like you, you're holding onto it for a pretty similar period of time. Whereas we get up to functional threshold, it's like you go 5% over it, you're probably going to last 20, 25 minutes, again, individual variance, but you go just below it, you could last an hour and a half. I mean, it, like there's such a big spread there because it's such a key mm. key transition point. Um, that then obviously then takes us through zone three. Zone four, we just go from that second transition point to your VO2 max. Um, for some, that's quite a big gap. For some, that's not a very big gap that's part of then the conversation around, well, what's going to be beneficial for that specific individual. If, if those two are quite close together, well, we need to move that top end out. Cause I always explain to guys, like if you, if you put a trampoline in a room and you jump on it, you're going to hit your head pretty quick. That's kind of like having a threshold very, very close to VO2 max. So there's not much more 
beyond that sort of like you go from being pretty okay to very, very difficult really quick. If we've got a bit more headroom though, so if we lift the of the ceiling, move VO2 max out a bit and doesn't have to necessarily be oxygen consumption, but definitely sort of where pace is, we can get a bit faster as well. Gives us more to play with to be able to bring threshold up a bit higher. It's a classic one for like, oh, I can't can't get my 5K time under 20 minutes. I say that a lot. It's like, well, VO2 max is occurring at just quicker than four minute K pace. Mm. We know VO2 max is like a five to seven-ish minute flat out time trial. If you're trying to run for 20 minutes at that pace, it's just not going to happen. But if we can move VO2 max out a little bit quicker, right, that four-minute K pace becomes a slightly less lesser percentage of that. Or like we've got a little bit more headroom to work into. Um, anything beyond VO2 max, we sort of deem that as zone five and it's kind of open-ended. It's beyond that point, we're just going to get further and further anaerobic contributions. And ultimately, you're not going to be lasting very long there. We're talking minute, 30 seconds, 20 second type stuff. Um, it's just about how much can you make yourself hurt for a very short period of time. Just coming back to um, zone four, you were mm-hmm. talking about having that kind of low ceiling um, and trying to bump up the top end. What if the uh, lactate threshold to VO2 max was quite a big range and maybe the threshold was really low um, compared to VO2 max? What would you do in that situation? Or is that a good thing? Yeah. So typically we see that, um, that that's probably the, when I say, when we see that, we quite often see it um, for those who've gone and when I say done a bit of reading on things like polarized training where they've gone really, really hard in their hard sessions and really, really easy and they're easy um, and haven't really focused on threshold. Um, mm-hmm. We've got room because like they, they've done a really good job of building a massive engine, but if they can't use it for a period of time. So if we're talking an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever the race might be, it's like, we want to move that up. So that's where your really traditional threshold training comes in. Like those 1K repeats off a short recovery at, at, at and around that threshold mark something like that's perfect. Your longer extensive stuff, your eight, 10 minute type effort um, with a short recovery in between at a pretty, when I say comfortably hard pace or like getting close, if not just sub threshold, your over-unders, those are the type of sessions that we can build the percentage of the engine we can hold. Um, That's then really critical. Um, Like ideally we want to hold as much of our engine as we can. Like that should be the goal. Like, all right, we've got a, we've got a pretty good VO2 max. We can run pretty fast at the top how much of that can we actually use for an hour and a half, two hours, three hours, whatever our race length is. Um, moving, like if we've got a big gap between where threshold and VO2 max is, like we've got a plenty of room to be able to bring that threshold up as a percentage. Um, it also then comes down to like, what's the dynamic between, what's the percentage of oxygen consumption? So we quite often refer to that percentage of max being say 80% of VO2 max as an oxygen consumption we might be able to get that up to 85, maybe in some circumstances, 90% of their maximal oxygen consumption. It then also comes down to like, depending on the dynamics of that individual, that could be happening 1K an hour apart. So we go from being at 80% at say 14Ks an hour. So that's like 415, 417 pace, for example. And then you might be at 100% VO2 max oxygen consumption wise at 15Ks an hour. Take another individual who might, have that threshold at 417 pace, uh, 14 Ks an hour at 80% of max, but they can keep just gradually having that oxygen assumption lift, lift, lift a bit slower. And they actually get out to 16 Ks an hour at the top. So now we're talking like as a percentage of oxygen assumption, it all looks the same, but clearly we've got athletes who can run two different speeds for similar periods of time. So that then works in the dynamic of, all right, we've got a moderate to, to good percentage of max oxygen assumption wise, but, is it a is it a speed issue? Like, do we need more leg speed at the top end? Like, your oxygen consumption might be fine. We we just don't have the pace in the legs, and so we blow up really quick. Or is it we've got the leg speed, we just can't hold on to it for a longer period of time? That then changes the kind of interval you might do. Like, if we need to hold on to it for a longer period of time, basically pick the pace you're trying to work at, stick at it for all right. It's, instead of doing one k repeats, let's do one point two k repeats, and then gradually build that out to one point fours and one point sixes. Um, if we need the leg speed, though, it's well, we probably got to go shorter efforts at a quicker pace, lift it up. So those are the decisions you can start to make in terms of where things sit. Because even with some of the numbers, you look at it on paper and go, well, oh, athlete A, athlete B, same percentage of VO2 max, uh, they need the same thing. It's like, well, what is that in the context of how fast they're running? Um, or what is that in the context of what is what does the gap look like, both oxygen consumption, but then also speed-wise as well, or blood lactate comes into it too, like, did it go from four millimole to eight or did it go from four millimole to six? 
that's going to play a bit of a different dynamic for that individual. Even something as simple as RPE, like one person's seven out of 10 is not the same necessarily as someone else's seven out of 10. So understanding mm. like some, someone might have blood lactate goes from four to eight and they say, oh, it only really jumped up 0.5 out of 10. So it went from seven to seven and a half difficulty. Like it doesn't hurt that much. Someone else goes from four to eight and they're like, oh, that jumped up. Instead of being seven out of 10, it's now a 10 out of 10. That's impossible. Um, those, uh, that's such an interesting in, individual, I guess, set of changes that you've got to work through and navigate. Um, and, and then ultimately ends up being slightly different programming for each of those individuals. Mm. Are you able to give us a little bit more understanding on, I guess, what actually lactate is? Um, we've obviously spoken about it a lot through that whole training zone um, section, but I think just understanding what actually is lactate, why is it in our body? What does it do? What does it mean? Um, just to give the listeners a bit more an understanding of what that lactate threshold, um, how that's actually been indicated. Yeah. So lactate fundamentally is not bad. I'll say that first. Lactate's great. Um, it, it ultimately is just a portion of a glucose molecule is the really, I'm going to keep that really simple because you can go into the ins and outs of, all right, let's go right through um, biology 101 and, and, sit down and talk really in-depth physiology for the most part for those who haven't been through any of those um the the study to look through any of that if we think about carbohydrates and glucose most people are familiar with glucose in as being a component of like a gel they might take that's a fuel that's a primary fuel source that we're going to use it at a lot of intensities moderate to higher intensity um when we break down our glucose molecules like we're going to try and use as much of that and keep breaking it down, breaking it down to give us as much energy return as we can. Um, when we do that uh, with without necessarily the presence of oxygen or we just need it quicker, we're going to get, basically you can come in, it's like, it's like smashing an Easter egg. I mean, you're going to get a big chunk over to one side. You get a few small chunks that you're going to quickly eat. That, that's kind of like what happens to a glucose molecule. It's like we get left over with this bit of a chunk over the side that we can then recycle and reuse. We can put it back through the system. Uh, like the body will want to use it as a fuel source. Um, ultimately, the really elite elite athletes, what we see in their, I guess, profiling data is that they have really, really low blood lactates for quite some time through something like a ramp test. Like it's very stable. It might be one millimole or even, even lower. Like some of the guys we tested recently, like 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 millimole, very low. They're producing blood lactate but they're also able to metabolize it and clear it out and reuse it because realistically, and this is oversimplifying it, but if you take a couple of lactate molecules and smash them back together, which is kind of what the body does when it metabolizes it, you end up pretty much with another glucose molecule. So we've just got more available energy. How efficient you are at that process comes down to what's your level of training and how aerobically fit are we? The more aerobically fit we are, yes, we'll produce some blood lactate, but we'll be able to metabolize it and clear it out at a pretty equivalent rates. As intensity goes up, though, it becomes harder and harder. And this is where we see blood lactate start to rise throughout something like a ramp test. And we get this, I guess, this sort of exponential curve. A lot of people have seen like a, a lactate inflection curve um, before. That's fundamentally what we're plotting for because those clear changes are, are telling us right, what's happening internally. Like clearly, there's a point of imbalance here of early on, we can produce a bit of lactate. Um, it's pretty comfortable. We can metabolize it. We can clear it out, recycle it as fuel, happy days. But as intensity goes up, we're now starting to produce it a bit quicker. Is it a case of are we producing it uh, much faster and we're still clearing it out pretty okay or are we producing it much faster and we can't quite clear it out as effectively anymore? Um, that's where we start to see, all right, when that's starting to get out of balance, we're getting these clear increases in, in lactate in the system. Um, it's lactate as I said, isn't bad. Like we were using it as a fuel source. It's, it's great. We need it. You're always going to have it. You're always going to have some residual in the system. You'll never be at zero because we need carbs to live. Um, and we're only going to get it when we are breaking down carbohydrate. Um, so, but that at the same time, like we're always going to have some carbohydrate utilization at, at a very, even a very minimal level. Um, a lot of people talk about, oh, very low intensity. You're predominantly using fats. Well, majority, like 99.9% .9 when you're at a very, very low almost resting or um, equivalent intensity, but there will always be a little bit of carbohydrate use, which is why you could be as rested as you like and prick your finger, take a little blood lactate sample, and it might be 1.2 um, or it might be 0 0.6 or it might be 2.4, depending on, again, training status. Like, have you just taken a gel on? Like, if you, if you suck down a gel and take your lactate, 
couple of minutes or two minutes after blood lactate's probably going to be up compared to normal because there's just more freely available glucose in the system so the body's going to want to use it mm-hmm. again smash the easter egg we're going to get some lactate as a as a result um so hopefully that was a little bit of a simplified summary because it can get quite technical and complex um but i think the major point to understand with it is um it's going to be there and we'll get we'll reuse it a lot of the time and, and i guess historically it's been associated with um people sort of talk about lactic acid to 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 some extent there's always gonna be a bit of debate about this but technically it doesn't really i guess exist um lactate by itself is fine like what they're more talking about in terms of that acidity or that burning sensation you start to feel um is more things like free hydrogen ions that will come out as i guess a bit of a byproduct of this whole process which again they can be metabolized and cycle through the system and, and cleared out. Um, but the, the aggressive accumulation of that is what's going to cause more to burn the legs. Lactate by itself as a molecule isn't the part that's going to make you start hurting. We just notice that accumulates because they come sort of together. It's like if we get accumulation of blood lactate, you can expect it's eventually going to start to burn because we're getting more hydronides. Reason for that is as intensity goes up and it gets harder, we want energy faster, but your aerobic system's reasonably slow at the end of the day. We're going to breathe in, transport the oxygen through the blood, get it to the working muscle. It's going to take time, but we need energy now because we want to run and we want to run quick. So we get that a bit more anaerobically. We're going to start breaking it down without the use of oxygen, get energy quickly. Downside, unfortunately, is we're going to be left with some leftovers. Like instead of methodically picking your way through that Easter egg, we are just smashing it down. It's like, you're going to have some stuff. You're going to have stuff go everywhere. Um, you can only sustain it for periods of time because, or shorter periods of time, because ultimately these byproducts will start to accumulate and we're not able to recycle out some of that existing lactate. So what does the body do? It's like, well, I don't really like this anymore. I want to be a bit more aerobic. It's We start to slow down ultimately. Um, or we we get to a point where we're like, I can't sustain this intensity because I just I just can't keep up with that, that rate of energy need. We start to slow down, get us back to a level where we can allow the aerobic system to catch up you go and run a 400 as hard as you can. It burns the last hundred meters of it. You wait five minutes and walk around for five minutes. You feel pretty good. Um, that's kind of the process we're talking about here. And so you can get the energy straight away. There's a downside to it in the short term. Um, can't run my marathon at my 400 meter pace, but after five minutes of just walking around, I let the aerobic system catch up. I feel fine again, or pretty close too, um, because we're starting to metabolize and we're starting to allow our body to go through those processes to make it as more efficient for us. That's how it wants to behave. But ultimately, we do have that reserve because it's a survival thing. Like think about way back when it's like if we just only had that aerobic system that was slow, if you had to get up and run away from something really quickly from a survival perspective, you'd be done. Like you'd mm. like, okay, cool. I've got a, a wild animal chasing me. I'm going to run away at six minute K pace. Um, it, it's not, it's not going to happen. Like we need to get up and go quick. And we've got that ability because of those anaerobic pathways unfortunately this is not that sustainable um so i guess that that hopefully dispels a few like myths and things around lactate like mm-hmm. again it, i know it can get a bit confusing for people because there's a lot of some of the like, historical stuff is a little bit out and like we've constantly just been evolving in terms of the, the science behind what is actually going on but fundamentally when it comes down to it it's just a component of a glucose molecule and we'll try to reuse it when we can and when we can't it will start to accumulate and sit a bit residual until we have an opportunity to get the aerobic system up to speed and, and using it. Yeah, cool. I think that makes sense. I think it, yeah, the way that you explained it, um, with those analogies make it nice and clear for people to understand. Um, and obviously if they've got more questions, they can reach out to you and get a further understanding. Um, I am conscious of time, but we have got a couple of listener questions that might be nice to go through. We have touched on some of the topics already, but if we can fill some of the gaps, um, from Ben Brockman, he asks about the Garmin and how the VO2 and lactate values on the Garmin, how do they compare to these lab tests and the data that you get from your tests? Yeah, it's a really good question. That's uh, like, without fail, it's probably the first thing most athletes will say post-test mm-hmm. is like, oh, my Garmin says it's 45. Like what, what was the actual data? Um, mm. At the end of the day, Garmin does a reasonable job and most of the algorithms out there for Polar or various watches and things like that do a reasonable job. All they're plotting in terms of a bit of very basic insight of how those algorithms work is it takes all of your pace data across your runs, takes all of your heart rate data, plots it all out and goes for your gender, age, weight, height, characteristics, um, the amount of Ks and stuff, puts it all into an algorithm, plots it all out and, and goes, this is roughly what your VO2 max should be. 
if you've got a pretty good spread of training intensity, so you do a bit of low-end stuff, you do some middle sort of thresholdy, sub-thresholdy stuff, some tempo, do a bit of high intensity, and you're going to build out a pretty well-rounded profile. So that's generally where I see it work reasonably well. Um, and lot, when I say low to moderate levels of training, um, where it starts to get a bit wildly away is when you start to really specifically target various things. So if you then go through an aggressive block of very polarized training, you're kind of missing that middle portion that the algorithm likes. So that's where we sometimes see some skews. Um, at the end of the day, oxygen consumption and heart rate uh, are going to be linear. So as oxygen, well, as heart rate goes up or and ultimately as intensity goes up, which again, if you think about your GPS data, so as our pace increases, our heart rate's increasing um, consistently with that. We know in the lab when we look at oxygen consumption, I show the, I, we, we bring the graph up to show, show clients when they come in the lab, it's like, your oxygen consumption and your heart rate are, are pretty much the most perfect linear correlation you're going to get. It's like spot on for every little increase in oxygen consumption there's increase in heart rate because cardiovascular system is such a big part of our total oxygen consumption. Um, so they do a reasonable job. Um, sometimes it's spot on. Uh, sometimes it's wildly out. Um, I'll quite often have athletes come in and they're like, oh, my watch tells me it's 65 and they test at 45. Um, and the other way around, sometimes they come in, it's like, oh, my watch is 50 and they actually come in, it's 55 in the lab. At the end of the day, the only way to really get an accurate VO2 max is to directly measure it. You have to measure your oxygen consumption, your gas exchange, put the mask on, run on the tree or, or be on the bike in the lab to see exactly what it is. Um, the estimates and things are, are, are reasonable. What I say for most people to use it though, it's like, well, how can you actually, like, is it worth looking at at all? I'd be tracking it just over time. So don't look at it day by day. Don't look at it session by session because it will prompt you on your watch to be like, oh, new VO2 max of, it was 52 yesterday, now it's 53. In the grand scheme of things, that means not a lot. Look at it over a three-month block. All right, what was it at the start of my training versus the middle versus towards the end? Did it start at 48 and then it ended up at 54? Pretty clear indication. And you're going to know this intuitively that you've improved from a fitness perspective and aerobic perspective. Um, that's the more important thing to look at with those those types of like estimated or or algorithm based metrics for for things like that. Yeah, wow. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I think like from from everything that we've gone through, I think it just really shows that there is so much more that we could probably be getting from our training. Like I I know that, you know, there's lots of different training models out there and different coaches that often trying to sell their programs and sell their way of training it. And I think often you know, think things can be simpler than they need to be. And I'm often saying that to my patients, like, you know, patience is key. Um, you know, take easy, easy days, easy, train hard on your hard days. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be so complex, but I think what you've just shown and highlighted is that there's so many different ways to train. And I guess if someone's really wanting to improve their performance, they can probably get so much more out of their training than they are. And, what their training partner might need is probably so different to what they need. So um, coming in and actually getting an assessment and having a look at their data, and as you said, data over time, not just one snapshot, is, is, is it, I mean, I shouldn't even say probably, like it would just transform anyone's um, ability because, you know, we can be so specific. So I think that's probably just um, really highlight, that's, I guess, probably the, the biggest takeaway already just from listening to everything you said there's so much more that everyone probably get out. So if someone feels like that they're, you know, hit a plateau or maybe they just don't feel like they're that fit. Well, you know, there's probably some missing pieces uh, in their training. So really interesting to hear all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's the classic one that, I mean, for most amateur runners, it's like the testing actually probably means more than what it does for the elite. Uh, like at the, at the very top end, like they're, they're, they're elite for a reason because they've already done a lot of things right. Um, we generally see, like we regularly see, Amateurs come in and like over four or six month periods, like they'll be 10%, 12% better. Um, it's huge improvements in, in terms of what they're doing because we're just being a bit more targeted, which then also is important because the amateur athlete is probably also working nine to five, has family commitments, social commitments, um, more work stress. Like it's when I say it's easy for the pros, yes, they train a lot, but like what they? they train for a job. Like mm. most of the rest of us, we train and then we have to go to work. We've got other things going on. Um, you want to make sure when you go out there and you've only got four hours a week or 10 hours a week, however much it is like that you nail it. And as you said, I mean, what might be happening for your training partner and you might be the same session, but your heart rates might be 15 beats different. 
Um, so like who should be running at 140 and who should be running at 160? Um, like you, you might both be feeling exactly the same, but something like that is just a simple adjustment, but you're not going to know until you actually test it. Um, so yeah, I, that's where I'd probably say like the amateurs, amateurs and, and those who are a bit more time poor, it's like, if you're looking at really trying to, like, what do I need, absolutely need to do? That's a great way to just pinpoint that and refine your focus and get the most out of it. Yeah, cool. I think that's a, probably a great place to leave it. We better let you go, but thank you so much for your time. There was heaps more questions that we wanted to get through. So we might have to do a part two um, in the future if that's all right with you. Um, but if the listeners want to reach out to you, if they're in Melbourne or passing through Victoria at any time, um, they can follow you at NJ underscore sports science on Instagram or at Mets performance as well. Um, and then is that the best way to reach you or is there a better option? Yeah, Instagram's uh, Instagram's pretty easy. Um, I'm generally pretty active on there. Or uh, you can email me nick at metsperformance.com um, is the is probably the, the second way to get in touch. Probably more so if you're, you're looking at coming into the lab. Uh, yeah, definitely send us an email and, and we can sort you out. So I hope you enjoyed listening to me being a guest and getting interviewed uh, on the Physiology Secrets podcast here. Um, another great episode, like I said at the beginning, just revisiting some of the fundamentals and some some basic concepts that we probably take for granted ourselves sometimes, but for, for some of the listeners, some great feedback that has come through is to for us to go back and revisit those, those topics. So if you do have any suggestions or ideas for the podcast, feel free to send them through. As you just heard, my email, nick at metsperformance.com. Uh, get in touch with us. Get in touch with us via our Instagram as well, at metsperformance or myself, at nj underscore sports science on instagram um, get in touch let us know your thoughts and ideas for the podcast what do you want us to talk about what are some things you want to hear us um, discuss or, or go through or people that you want us to talk to on the podcast happy to take all suggestions but we're going to leave it there for for today again hopefully you enjoyed a, a bit of a different style of episode but plenty out of that one and we'll catch you in the next one